I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we discuss USTR Thai's decision to convene a U.S.-Africa trade ministerial. Plus, we go over the issues on the table at the WTO, including the fisheries negotiations, the e-commerce moratorium, and the TRIPS vaccine waiver. We also talk about Biden's latest Buy America proposal and what it would mean for U.S. businesses and the economy. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. Hope you're both well. Let's start off today talking about Africa. On Tuesday, USTR Catherine Tai announced plans to convene a US-Africa trade ministerial. This would replace the annual AGOA forum later this year. What were your reactions to the news? It uh, reminded me to look up the history of AGOA, and I realized that AGOA, if it were a person, would be old enough to buy a beer. It turned 21 in May. So I know AGOA stands for the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. It was signed into law by President Clinton in May of 2000. And that's back in the days when we worked together because that was a Democratic president and a Republican House and Senate. And uh, the Africa Trade Preference Program, which is AGOA, always had a lot of bipartisan political support. So it, it was a positive thing to do at the time. It's maintained that support. Uh, now, it is a preference program. And previously, we've talked about things like GSP, the Generalized System of Preferences. This is sort of GSP plus, the roughly 5,000 items, which if you're a part of the GSP program, you have duty-free access on those 5,000 items. AGOA added another 1,800 items, mostly light industrials, um, in, in an effort to, uh, to encourage trade. It's a one-way deal. It's, I mean, it is a U.S. U.S. drops the tariffs to zero, but there was no expectation that, that Africa do the same for U.S. goods. However, like any preference program, there were qualification criteria about uh, sort of improvements to the rule of law and uh, human rights and uh, anti-corruption, those kinds of things. So that's, that's what AGOA is. Results have been okay. There's roughly in what 2019, which is the most recent sort of data, it's also pre, pre-COVID data, about $8.4 billion worth of goods were imported under the preference program. Now, that's, uh, that's not changed a lot in, in absolute dollars, only 2% higher than it was in 2001, the first year of the program. And it's really only about a half of a percent of total U.S. imports. So it's never been all that big, and it still is somewhat weighted toward crude oil. 55% of the, of the preference uh, goods uh, were either crude oil or petrochemicals of some sort of petroleum-based products. So it's one of those things. I think it's it's a positive item, but it's it's never been uh, something that generated a, a whole lot of trade. I think it's important that the Biden administration and uh, Ambassador Ty figure out what to do next. Well, once again, this demonstrates the strength of the podcast. Scott is an expert on facts, and I have no facts, but I'm an expert on opinions. And so in, in this case, I think it was noteworthy that Ambassador Ty made her comments at the U.S.-Africa Business Summit, which is run by the Corporate Council on Africa. I just finished moderating a panel for them earlier today. So 
Africa has been on my mind. And the topic of discussion ended up, I think, appropriately being what's next? Where do we go? And there were interesting uh, differences of, of opinion. It was the Chatham House rule, so I can't say who said what. But I think some people, I think particularly the Africans, emphasized uh, AGOA, the importance of AGOA, uh, the importance of growing AGOA, although not everyone said that. And some of the Africans and also some of the Americans said, really, the focus going forward needs to be on uh, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the AFCFTA, which 54 of the 55 African nations have signed. Only Eritrea has not. Uh, I think 29 has uh, 29 have ratified and implementation is following along behind. It doesn't do everything. They're filling gaps even now in negotiations. And one of the issues that people are beginning to debate now is how does the U.S. fit into basically what will ultimately be, we hope, a region wide free trade agreement? How do we approach that? You know, we tried to negotiate a region wide free trade agreement with the European Union didn't get very far. Nobody has proposed doing that with AFCFTA, but a number of people have pointed out at different times. In fact, we have, uh, I think on a past podcast, pointed out that trying to negotiate bilateral free trade agreements with African countries, which is what the Trump administration started to do, uh, kind of runs across purposes with the AFCFTA, where countries in the, on the continent are making mutual obligations to each other and it may be difficult for a single country to make separate agreements uh, with the United States that they are not expected to or are not willing to extend broadly to all of the other African nations. It kind of remains to be seen how this will unfold. I think what was noteworthy in Ambassador Tai's remarks was that while she announced we were going to have a U.S.-Africa trade ministerial in the fall, two things to say. That is short of the AGOA summit, which is required annually by law, which has had in some cases as many as a thousand people attending, this will be a ministerial. So smaller group and more focused on, on government. But she also didn't say anything about negotiations. And uh, this continues a pattern. She's not said anything about negotiations since she came in, except to say that they're under review uh, and to say specifically when she testified that U.S. Kenya was under review. So we are kind of left with the same problem that we get left with all the time, which is uh, if you're going to pursue a new trade policy, if you're going to have a trade policy that's for the workers or a trade policy for the middle class, you know, pick your, your group here. Um, hopefully they're the same. How do you do that if you're not going to negotiate anything? And how do you do it with Africa if you're not proposing to negotiate anything? And that remains the, uh, that remains the question. I mean, I think will renew a Goa, I suspect, again, uh, and there will be the debate over some details and, and the debate over expansion. But that kind of leaves hanging the larger question of, of U.S. economic engagement with, with Africa. And it really doesn't touch on the question of investment, which I think for the African nations is probably the more important issue. Yeah, Bill's right. AGOA will certainly be reauthorized. I think it's almost certain it'll be reauthorized. It's always had strong public support and political support in the United States, but it's kind of limiting on what it actually can do. The preferences are relatively small. The continent's a long way away from the United States as a as a destination market. So there are some there are some hurdles, and I think that's the reason we're getting the results we get that it's a relatively small part of our imports, while the companies and countries that utilize AGOA are helped by it. Overall, it's not, it's not solving big problems. 
For me, I, I think Africa really takes imagination. It is a giant continent with very little natural infrastructure. So if you look at Africa as a continent and look at the sort of the rivers, internal ways of transporting the goods, the natural routes are far less than, uh, say, Europe. Or perhaps, you know, there's nothing like the Mississippi River or the Missouri-Mississippi system, which was vital to the United States development at, at a point in time. The problem of Africa has always been sort of scale and distance and transport infrastructure that didn't allow connections in, internal to Africa. So if you want to create scale, you've got to get the countries of Africa better connected, trading more with each other, uh, with better physical connections as well as commercial connections. But look, that's where all the young people are in the world. That's for me where imagination can help is Africa today is about where South Asia was demographically speaking, 30 years ago. And from 1990 to today, essentially East Asia eliminated poverty as measured by the World Bank. It was astonishing progress. And I, I think we ought to have a vision for the same thing happening in the next 30 years in Africa. I think that would be really exciting. AGOA won't do it alone, but if we put our minds to it, we know it's possible because we've seen it done. The old joke is, you know, that Africa has been the next big thing for the last 30 years. So I think it's time we get past slogans and past simply preference plans, which is what AGOA is, and focus on how to really promote economic growth in the continent. And I think Scott's pointing in a good direction there. Speaking of ministerials to look out for, let's turn now to the WTO. The General Council met yesterday and is meeting again today, and there are three big issues on the table. The fisheries negotiations, the e-commerce moratorium, and the TRIPS vaccine waiver. We've talked about all three on the podcast before, but now that we're getting closer to the WTO ministerial, how optimistic are you on each of the issues? I may be naive. I mean, I probably, but I'm kind of optimistic on fish. It's been going on so long, and they've actually done a good job of you know narrowing the issues down to a few. And they're difficult issues, mostly revolving around special and differential treatment for somebody. And that's really the question, who? Uh, it's easy to agree on the, on the LDCs, the least developed countries, but you've got a bunch of other countries, beginning with China and India. And China in particular is, is the, in, in a way, the biggest villain when it comes to uh, subsidized fishing. I think their fishing subsidies are $6 billion plus dollars, and they're the pr- biggest uh, users of, of sort of these large industrial fishing uh, things that go and sort of scoop out everything, everything in the ocean, freeze it on board, and then sell it. They and the Indians are both insisting that as developing countries, they should be treated uh, more leniently than everybody else, even though they're a very significant part of the problem. Getting over that hump will be it will be difficult, require some statesmanship. But I have some confidence in Ngozi, I think, who's been very good so far at trying to mobilize everybody and creating a sense of urgency and being creative and in moving things along. So I'm optimistic about that. I'm not optimistic about the vaccine waiver. I think where it's going, frankly, is exactly what Scott and I predicted several months ago, which is that, you know, the U.S. gesture has turned out to be uh, in supporting the waiver has turned out to be a gesture. Uh, Very few other countries changed their positions and talks have not really gone anywhere. And, And I have to say part of it is because the Indians and the South Africans haven't changed their position materially either. And the message from the United States, among others, was, you know, we can talk about uh, a waiver for the vaccine, but you want to have a waiver for all this other stuff, uh, PPE and all this associated 
uh, material that goes along with it, and that's too big. You know, the revised proposal from uh, India and South Africa doesn't really change that. So there's been no willingness on the proponent side to to limit, and there's therefore I think, or uh, there's really been no movement on the opponent side uh, uh, to uh, suggest anything. I, so I used to say that the pandemic is going to be over before they settle this. On the other hand, the pandemic keeps coming back, so uh, maybe it won't be over. By, but I'm I'm pessimistic about getting this resolved unless there's some unexpected breakthrough. On e-commerce, I think Scott's more up to date on it than I am. I, I, it sounds like they're making progress on the not-so-important issues and the fundamental things like uh, data localization. I don't think they're making any progress at all, but they've made a lot of progress on sort of, I wouldn't say peripheral because they're not unimportant, but uh, there's a bunch of issues that are relatively easy to agree on, and I think they're making progress there. So I can see a ministerial declaration on that subject. I don't think it's going to cover everything, though. Right. Yeah. The e-commerce won't be a deal breaker, uh, but it won't change the, the world. So that's one that just usually gets extended to the next ministerial in some form or another. And I would expect that again. I'm also hopeful on fish. This has been around for a long time, but some of my hopes is based on the work that's been done by the director general and by the, the working group. And it's being well led, I think, to focus on the core issues I'm also hopeful just because we need a model for how to solve commons problems internationally. If we're going to get anywhere on, on things like climate change, uh, we ought to be able to deal with something like like fish. I've thought that for a long time, but, but I am more hopeful than I've been. And look, on vaccines, the more I watch this and more I watch what's happening as this virus mutates and becomes endemic, uh, we're fighting the last war. We're working on exactly the wrong things. A waiver for production of the existing COVID vaccines a year from now. They'll get in people's arms a year from now. I mean, that's idiotic, okay? At the moment, we're scaling up production and, and trying to get distribution systems. Everybody who wants a vaccine in the world will have been able to get one by this time next year, or they'll have had the disease and have natural immunity. In any case, that's a problem that's going to solve itself without this IP waiver. In the meantime, all this debate is keeping us from what we ought to be doing which is to thinking about the next virus, the next pandemic, and how we get the combined resources of academic R&D and know-how, manufacturer R&D and know-how, and the approval authorities around the world, most of the government agencies that examine and approve for, for human use these, uh, these vaccines, figure out how to make that work better, how you could do Operation Warp Speed on a global basis. That's a problem that we ought to have some energy to solve that we are not working on in part because we're we're busy fighting the last war on on covid ip so let's get on with it people want to debate this that's great send them off to a desert island to do that and let's let the grown-ups work on something that will actually make a difference in human health in the future we're capable of it we can do better well, I'm sure we will continue to follow these issues in the lead up to the November conference. Last topic for today, President Biden announced on Monday that this week is Made in America Week. Today he is in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania and announced stronger Buy American rules for the federal government. What's the latest development here? You know, uh, I've been going to these uh, American manufacturing celebrations for some time now. I remember them being held at the White House during the Clinton and Bush 43 administrations. And 
And uh, I think President Trump did the same thing. And so, look, American manufacturing is fantastic. It's great. We ought to celebrate it. We're the top three worldwide. If you count Europe as one, it produces something between six and seven trillion dollars of, of output every year. 12 million people or so work in manufacturing in America. That's great. And we ought to celebrate that. And, and it's good politics to do so. And it actually generated one of my favorite pictures, which was that President Trump was photographed sitting behind the wheel of an American-made fire engine. And you could see the look on his face and you knew he was making motor noises, uh, which is exactly what I would have been doing. <laughs> and I've been in the truck too. So, <laughs> but, but so look, but beyond that, that's the good part. What we have in terms of the president's announcement and increasing content requirements and administrative requirements for the uh, federal purchasing under Buy America, it seems like we're looking at the, through the wrong end of the telescope. Now, let me give you this some scale here. I said basically total U.S. manufacturing to, at an output level is roughly $7 trillion a year. So it's, it's a big share of the economy. Federal procurement of goods and services. Now, this is GAO, and they lump it all together as $665 billion. About $300 billion of that is goods. So let's just focus on, on the things that you can actually make, uh, set aside services. That $300 billion uh, in services used to be the requirement uh, for U.S. content was 50%. It was raised to 55 Now it's being raised again to 60 and with a goal of 75. But it, if you look at that, every 5% increment is less than a tenth of 1% of GDP. So if you're ta talking about goods, the $300 billion worth of goods, a 5% increase is sort of $15 billion of additional US sales. Come on, this is a $22 trillion economy. We're never going to find it. Uh, at the same time, you know, you, you set up a big government authority to do this. You have an administrative effort. You have a, an office of Buy America. You have programs all throughout the government. Ultimately, it looks to me like uh, a little bit of doing less with more, which is kind of the opposite of productivity. But more importantly, it just shows once again that people get into politics often do it because they, they, they believe there's no math involved. <laughs> because when you look at the math of this, it's like, well, that's not much. Maybe I'm missing something here, Bill. No, even when they announced it, I think there were some of the analysts from the beginning have said that the, the economic impact might not be all that great. I think the long-term impact will come from more data gathering. Well, when it was 50%, it was sort of a kind of a self-certifying thing, which is companies would say that they, their product may uh, have made the content floor or it did not. Part of today's uh, announcement is that they're going to be asking contractors or suppliers to submit a lot more information about what they do. And I think that, that it'll be interesting to see what, what the data ends up showing, because as, as we've said before on this podcast, right now, technically, 96% of federal procurement is already domestic. Now, what that leaves out is it's domestic with a 50 or 55% content rule. And uh, there's not been an awful lot of scrutiny uh, behind uh, that number. Companies say we meet it, and uh, there's not a lot of checking that goes on. Now, not only is the number going up, but uh, ultimately, as Scott said, like 75, but not only is the number going up, but uh, there's going to be, uh, I think, a closer look at 
how the number was derived in, in individual cases. And companies are going to have to provide more information about their supply chains and where their parts and components come from. What that will probably show is that um, even though products now are considered American, and even though they'll be considered American in, in the future, they're still going to contain substantial amounts of, of foreign content. The idea of this is, is reshoring. It's to try to force manufacturers to bring their supply chains back on shore, which is expensive and time-consuming and, um, uh, and complicated. I mean, supply chain managers have spent years trying to refine uh, what they do to locate best quality at the lowest price with the best delivery schedule. Uh, and they constructed intricate networks of, uh, in order to do that, which we're discovering, as Scott has talked about frequently, is discovered kind of blowing up thanks to the pandemic. And you've got, uh, you know, uh, container shortages, you've got uh, transportation shortages, you've got backlogs, you've got ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal, you've got factories opening and closing based on COVID. So you've got all these supply chain disruptions that have already complicated companies' lives. Uh, the administration, of course, will say, well, if you brought all that stuff back on shore, you wouldn't have any of those problems. And I guess from one point of view, uh, that's true, but it would be somewhere between a little bit more expensive and a lot more expensive to do that. People went offshore in the first place for cost reasons, but I think also sometimes for reliability reasons. And so rebuilding domestic capabilities is not going to be easy. And, uh, you know, an auto manufacturer that wants a particular part, it's not a given that somebody in the United States already makes that in exactly the, the configuration with the quality uh, that you want. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, it's going to take a long time for, uh, you know, parts and components manufacturers to develop, you know, de novo in the United States in ways that will be suitable for larger companies' supply chains. It's going to be a lot rockier road than the administration thinks. And the question that I'm left with is, is anybody going to bother you know, if you're if you're a chip manufacturer, most of your product is exported. You know, the the, the federal government uh, is not your primary customer. That 600 billion, as Scott pointed out, is or 300 billion if you're talking about goods, is is peanuts compared to the you know to the global economy. And I think a lot of manufacturers are just going to say, well, you know, it's not worth the cost of doing all that stuff for what is going to amount to a relatively small sale. So we'll just forego government procurement. Now, in some cases where there's long been, for example, special rules, like on subway cars, where there's an existing special rule, you basically got a whole industry that's developed here devoted to assembly. Because since most subways are federally funded, at least in part, they all have to meet federal procurement requirements, one of which is final assembly needs to be in the United States. So there are sectors where this matters and will continue mattering. But I think for a lot of, of, of uh, companies, they're just going to end up saying, uh, it, it, you know, it's not worth the effort. We don't gain enough in, in terms of market to do all the things they want us to do. Often known as the intelligent loss of sale, you know, that we're just going to not bid on the, that federal contract because it, it costs us too much. It, it's too much of a distraction to our systems. You know, we, we do import a trillion dollars worth of intermediates every year. So of the importing a trillion dollars of things to make other things, raw materials, ingredients, intermediates, means a lot of decisions that those were best best price, best service, best value. And that's how they got in the products in the first place, how, that's, how they became of interest to the, the final assemblers. So this is a lot more complicated and uh, 
I think it's the usual thing. It's what I learned as a corporate lobbyist is that well, while politicians uh, understand there's no such thing as a free lunch, they tend to think it doesn't really apply to them, but it does. Well, and there's, I think there's two other things to consider. I mean, the administration is also going to start talking about doing things like we need to create more jobs uh, in the Northern Triangle in Central America. And I think they're already talking about that more as an element of immigration policy than anything else. If there's more jobs in Guatemala or El Salvador, there's going to be fewer people coming here, uh, which I think is good policy and makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, that's directly contrary to a reshoring policy. You know, if you're going to create more jobs in the United States, making parts and components, I mean, it's not zero sum, but it's, it's partly zero sum in the sense that you're going to be either not creating or in some cases taking away uh, jobs in developing countries, developing countries that the United States wants to support for a variety of policy reasons. The other trade issue that remains to be settled is, um, and we have to look at the fine print, is whether this contravenes any trade rules. The administration says, and said again today, that it does not. And I think the right answer is, well, we'll see. It's not clear exactly what they mean when they say it does not. We belong to the government procurement agreement, uh, and that requires us to provide equal treatment for other signatories for a whole bunch of stuff. I know I have seen no sign that we intend to change that, but, you know, that is, uh, it raises the question, we'll have to look and see what the, when, when the regulation is finally produced, I guess there's a 60 day comment period. When they finally produce their regulation, we'll have to see what they say about that. One way that if they decide not to use all these uh, government resources for, for tracking and tracing and, and uh, managing the, the, this modest increase in procurement, perhaps they can just ask companies what would make them more efficient and more productive and hire more people and follow some of those recommendations. But uh, maybe that's too much to ask. Well, I, <laughs> speaking as, as, the, as the relative liberal in this group, uh, I'm not sure that asking the companies is going to get you the most, uh, get you the best answer to that question. It's going to get you the most self-serving answer to that question. I can tell you what they'll say, which is, you know, lower my taxes and get rid of my the regulations that stop me from doing whatever I want to do. And, uh, you know, don't raise the minimum wage. None of that's going to fly. Understood. But it, it sure is a good thing that we do make a lot of stuff in America the way it is and uh, have a 12 million or so jobs to show for it. So, well, and, and there will be some reshoring anyway. I mean, we've talked about yeah. this and this is this is going on now. And all you have to do is look at, at all the, you know, the, the log jams in ports and the transportation issues. And I mean, people started trying to shorten their supply chains before the pandemic, uh, before Trump. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. Oh, that's right. What's happened over the last couple of years has accelerated that. And I think for, for critical sectors, go back to the four the administration reported on in June, you know, batteries, mm -hmm. critical minerals, um, chips, and uh, pharmaceutical uh, products. For those, I think you, you're going to get public support for more onshore production because people see the sort of the national security and economic security implications. You know, but the uh, the government buys a lot of stuff that doesn't have any security implication. You know, the, the Pentagon goes through a lot of rolls of toilet paper every year, I guarantee you, you know, and paper towels as well. And that's all government procurement. And, you know, probably we, we, since we got a lot of trees in the United States, that's probably not an issue of, uh, of imports. But, you know, the question is going to come up. I think you can sell this. Uh, with a national security argument within certain limits. And in the end, we end up saying, well, how is the administration going to define 
what constitutes security from their point of view, because it could be kind of an endless expansion of, of to everything. I think that's what would have happened in Trump if he'd been around long. Well, that yeah, if you look at some of the some of the reports that didn't get issued by the prior administration, national security for automobile production, for instance, you can take this to quite to the extreme. Well, Bill's right. This new proposal from Biden is subject to a 60-day comment period, which will allow industry and the public to weigh in, after which the administration will work on a final rule. So I'm sure we'll continue to follow this process, but thanks to you both again for a great episode. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.